Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is the fun size version of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me almost anything. And to ask your questions of me is producer Joe Russo, looking fresh as a daisy right out of the gym. Joe, how are you? I am. I'm as well as can be, Mick. You know, it's it's a it's a crazy time in the world, isn't it? Uh, it is. It is indeed. And, uh, you know, it's it's a really serious thing that's going on uh, in Eastern Europe. And I know we all have heavy hearts over that. I have friends over there. I've been getting reports from uh, Denis Poshnikov, uh, who is a a uh, Ukrainian horror writer based in Odessa. And uh, it's it's really heartbreaking. Um, and I know we are all in solidarity and hoping for the best. Yes, absolutely. Um, but, you know, hopefully we can take everyone's minds off things for just a, a few minutes as we uh, dive into some some questions, which I have pruned and culled the best of the best for. Oh, so. great. Before we dive into those questions, yes, I need sir. to make a correction because on the last AMA, I was talking about Alfred Hitchcock movies. And I mistakenly said that the Trouble with Harry was Hitchcock's favorite of his own films. That was my mistake. I realized that I misspoke because his favorite of his movies was actually Shadow of a Doubt with Joseph Cotton. Ah. Both of them are terrific movies, but Shadow of a Doubt is definitely a better film than The Trouble with Harry or a more satisfying film, let me put it that way. I agree. Uh, well, Mick, I guess we are not as infallible as we thought. We, we get something wrong. Once in a while, but to err is to be human. And so. I'm plenty fallible, <laughs> and there's no doubt about that. Right. Well, let's let's see if we can uh, we can get some questions right this week. Hot dog. Um, shell out of hell. Right. <laughs> I really enjoyed your Horse Feathers album. Oh. It makes me wonder: Have you ever jammed with Stephen King? Um, first of all, thank you for that. And anybody who's interested, the uh, Horse Feathers album was music that my band made from the 70s that we updated and added new vocals and instrumentation and uh, remixed. And it's available from horsefeathersmusic.com or on Apple Music, Spotify, or all those other places. So thanks for the opportunity to plug that. Um, I never was able to play with the Rock Bottom Remainders or jam or sing with them, but I have been to two or three of their concerts and their rehearsals. And it is so much fun to see all of these authors and writers and creators living out their rock star fantasies on stage. It's a total blast. And, uh, you know, maybe one day they'll get back together and uh, get the band back together and play again. And uh, maybe I can shake a tambourine. I think that would be great. Um, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Ryan writes, recent guests have discussed audio drama projects. Have you ever considered this form of storytelling to bring your unproduced scripts to life? Actually, yes, not so much for the unproduced screenplays, but I'm actually in talks with a, a friend who is very well connected in the podcast world about turning my novel Salome 
into a, a group of chapters as an audio drama presented, oh. presented online in, in podcast form. Cool. So uh, don't know if and when that's going to happen, but it's very promising. And I would basically um, do the adaptation myself from novel to radio play, basically, and bring in some of my uh, esteemed actor friends to fill out the cast. Oh, man, that would be terrific. Uh, as you know, I'm a big Salome fan and still Thanks. hope for a movie someday. So. Yeah, me too. But, you know, I write the books because I don't think they'll make them into movies. Well, you know, you never know. Never say never. Uh, it might even be an audio podcast drama. So we'll take that. And then that that will be IP. Right. Exactly. Then 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 we'll get everybody excited because they'll see the potential. Yeah. Uh, they'll see what we saw when, you know, you read the book. That's right. <laughs> Which is another opportunity for a plug, but I'll let you look that up. Uh, fair enough. It's this this is also the Mick Garris advertising uh, show. <laughs> right. The non-movie and TV material available yeah. to you from Mick Garris. Yeah. All right. James wants to know, would you or Joe ever consider adapting Nightmare Cinema into an anthology series a la Masters of Horror? Well, Joe, you know how funny a question that is, because the original intent was for Ma for Nightmare Cinema to be a follow up to Masters of Horror, to be yep, a yep. weekly horror anthology. And the original concept was to do a show in a different country with a filmmaker from that country doing horror stories from around the world as yes. a weekly series. Yes. We tried mightily to do that. And uh, then we tried to do it as a series of self-contained feature films that maybe do two or three of them a year for theatrical or for streaming. And we ended up uh, <laughs> making a big compromise, doing a, a tiny budget, but a film with international filmmakers uh, expressing themselves the way that we did on Masters of Horror in a feature film format that ended up on Shudder. So, which ironically, uh, as we record this five years ago today, we started shooting the first segment, uh, right? With Ryuhei Kitamura. So. That's right. Which is, uh, which is pretty wild because, and maybe it's just because we're talking all the time on postmortem, but it does not feel like it's been five years. Uh, <laughs> well, it, it wasn't five years ago that it came out. It took that's a while. That's true. Five years when we shot it. Right. Yeah. That's there was right. a long gestating post-production process and uh festival run a very successful festival run i mean very yeah gosh well we probably played in over 30 festivals and, and headlined most of them yeah uh, which was great and you know I, I i said at the time and i still stand by it we made the movie so mick could go on vacation uh, <laughs> over and over and <laughs> over, over and over and over again <laughs> well uh, i do no, travel I mean, the world yeah yeah i mean it was it was uh that was the original process i mean i remember you and i taking meetings at you know the wine scene company and and taking meetings at i am thank Global god that and, didn't work out yeah, yeah no right jesus <laughs> uh but but that shows you how far back this thing goes um yeah. You know, we, we met all over town and talked to people and everybody loved the process. But, you know, anthology's always been kind of a dirty word with buyers. And know? it even was back when we did Masters of Horror. But Anchor yeah. Bay was going to make it re whether there was a TV distributor or not. And the deal with Showtime was that they paid so little they had no creative input. And and that was part of the selling point of the show was these great filmmakers 
uncensored and allowed to tell the stories they want the way they wanted to tell it. And that yeah. was the philosophy we followed in nightmare cinema, but that nightmare cinema was conceived even before you and I met. Oh, I, of course. Yeah. You, 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 we, we met with the purpose of talking about nightmare cinema. Yeah. I, I, my original concept was to follow up nightmare uh, masters of horror with a show like nightmare cinema as mm -hmm. an international horror anthology. You know, it's funny, Nick, I don't even know if we've ever really talked about this specifically, but one of the reasons I think that Nightmare Cinema did happen is because of Masters of Horror, not just because uh, it, it follows in the same footsteps creatively, but Brandon Hill and I were at one of the film festivals that Masters of Horror uh, premiered at and toured at back when it first came out. Back in Arizona? I, back in Arizona. And I we remember. saw it and we saw Toby Hooper's episode. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, so I just feel like there's, it's, it's not, I don't think there's such things as fate, but, but coincidence, a, a plenty when Brandon ended up being the one who convinced his boss to pay for the script, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and the fact that I was the one who brought it from the guy who created the anthology thing that he and I pretty much bonded over anthologies on. So, uh, awesome. you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a really full circle thing. I mean, I think you and I would both love to see Nightmare Cinema continue in some form or another. Yeah, uh, and we've talked with Shudder about the possibility, and uh, then they we were going to do an all-female uh, uh, Nightmare Cinema movie, uh, and then Shudder had their own all-female uh, anthology horror. We'll movie. figure it out. It's we'll it's, figure it, it out. People and, are we're still yeah. actively talking. Yep, I think there's still a desire to do it. It's just a matter of. Again, finding the right group of people to take the chance. Um, but, uh, but you know, we'll, we'll keep you posted as that progresses. And I'm still committed to anthology as a format. Uh, Absolutely. You've, you've, you've got some in the works as of, as of right now. So. As of now. And, yep, uh, yep. So, we'll be hearing about them very soon. Yeah. Yes, more, more Mick Garris anthologies to come. Uh, <laughs> all right. Speaking of Masters of Horror, Marcelo asks... Can you please talk about the opening credit sequence of Masters of Horror? Um, yeah, I, I wish I could say that it was my conception and that I guided it all. But uh, <laughs> at, at the time when you create a series, people uh, who make title sequences, they, they are invited to pitch their ideas and to put together reels and, and what they would do. So I was not a part of that process. It was really more in the hands of Anchor Bay, um, but I love what they did and it became quite influential. Uh, yeah. you, you see series opening titles today that reflect very much an influence of the opening titles. Uh, plus the, the music for the opening titles on Masters of Horror is quite striking and, and memorable and again, influential. But I have two credits in the opening titles um, and one of them is, executive producer over a decomposing dead rat. <laughs> and the other one is a little uh, more uh, appealing. Uh, my name over a puddle of blood as drips of blood. You don't, you don't think uh, they were subtly trying to tell you something back? I don't uh, know. Well, <laughs> I, I haven't decomposed completely yet. So. True. Uh, no, they are, they're terrific credit sequences. And if you, if you haven't seen it, uh, seek it out because it's really cool. 
Yeah, and, now and, they're showing what, them all on Screenbox. Uh, uh, with oh no. well, yeah, there you go. You can go check out Screenbox, and uh, and I think they have all sorts of like sign up bonus things that you can sign up for free and check it out. And if, yeah. you, if you haven't watched Masters of Horror, why are you listening to the Postmortem <laughs> exactly. podcast? Yeah. <laughs> I think Jesus. it's on Tubi with commercials, but it's it's uh, commercial free, ad free, no editing. Uh, yeah, it is. It is more screen. accessible at this moment than I think it, it's ever been in the course of us doing this podcast. So that's for sure. Uh, go see it. Yeah. Um, more, more Mick Garris plugs. Um, <laughs> all right. Gray asks, is there a non-genre dream project you've always wanted to do? You know, not in particular. I've always wanted to do a project outside of the horror and fantasy genre. Um, but there isn't really, for a while, I really wanted to do Gerald's Game, but you could still call that a horror movie I or think a thriller so. or something. And it is Stephen King, so it's not that far afield from <laughs> what I have done in the course of my career. Um, but I would just, uh, you know, Salome, mm. uh, which we were just talking about as, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, as an audio drama, mm -hmm. is a dream project I would love to make. It's a Hollywood desert noir murder mystery. I love film noir. I love desert noir. Red Rock West is, is a movie that I, I absolutely love. And I would love to play in that playground. In a way, my Masters of Horror Chocolate episode, which was based on a short, short story I'd written 20 years before, is a film noir. It's got a narrator. It's uh, got a femme fatale. It's, it's, it's done. I didn't realize it at the time until I'd finished it, that it was uh, heavily noir influenced. Mm. But Salome is from the first sentence, a, a, a literary film noir. And I'd yes. love to translate that to the screen and um, maybe we'll get the opportunity. Fingers and toes cross. It's one of my favorite books of yours. So thank you. All right. Uh, well, speaking of your literary prowess, Corden Cobb Mike asks, uh, can you tell us how your process changes between screenwriting and prose? Well, the process isn't so different, but stylistically, it's very different. In the case of prose, there's nothing between you and the author, but a page, whether it's electronic or paper. Um, and the language is important. In a film, the language is a blueprint. Other than dialogue, language is a blueprint and you don't wanna get lost in the use, the beautiful and entertaining use of words right. further than you want someone to keep turning the page and keep reading it, keep it literary enough to make it propulsive. But when I'm writing books, I, I have a very playful use of the English language. Mm. Um, I've been writing fiction since I was 12 years old. And, um, you know, screenwriting, it's still the same discipline. I get up in the morning, I sit down in front of the computer and I work for a couple hours and, and try and crank out at least 10 pages. But one is a blueprint that a lot of other people will be involved in the translation of between the time of the conceived idea and the time it reaches the screen, if and when. Whereas in prose, the language matters a lot. And it's, it's also a very internal medium. You can write about a character from within rather than from without. Film is visual and 
books are internal. And that's something that was quite profound when Richard Matheson, the author and screenwriter, said to me years ago when I was working on Amazing Stories, working together with Richard. And he said to me, film is uh, external and books are internal. And that makes a huge difference in how you approach them. It's also probably the, the best, cleanest, simplest way I've ever heard the difference described. Um, so yes, thank you, Richard. Yes, thank you, Richard, for 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 many uh, things. Um, all right, switching gears from writing to post production. Uh, Steve wants to know what is your involvement like in sound editing and mixing. Do you spot the film? Are you there for ADR? Do you sit in on the final mix? All of those elements are every bit as important as the production. Yes, I'm involved in all of it. I spot sound effects. I spot music with the composer. I sit in the mix uh, from beginning to end. Um, you know, I think post-production is at least a third of what a movie is. Uh, music and time, color timing and sound effects and creating just a, a whole sound stage that even though most people are going to watch something on their televisions rather than in movie theaters, people have home theaters. I know I do, and I know lots and lots of people do with surround sound. All of those elements are incredibly important. And, and I think a director's job is to take it all the way through. When you're working in episodic television, <clears throat> a lot of directors don't even, especially ones who work a lot in TV, they don't even show up for the edit. Yeah. Um, but I figure it's all important, even though the showrunners may completely change what a director does because the showrunner has the final cut. Um, it's important to fulfill your voice. And if you don't take the opportunities given to you, those opportunities will be taken away from you. Right. The Directors Guild gives you the opportunity to do a full and complete director's cut on an episodic TV show. And if you don't take advantage of it, you might lose that. Yeah. And uh, other than on episodic, sometimes there have been a couple of shows where I've not been on the mix because I'm in a different country at the same time. But uh, I will always avail myself of, of the mix from beginning to end. Yeah, no, I, th I think it's, you know, speaking of back to Nightmare Cinema, I remember uh, when, you know, I sat in on a lot of the post sessions yeah. with you guys. And I remember one time when we were color timing, Joe Dante was like, what? He's like, this is this is like watching paint dry. Why are you here? And I was like, when else am I going to get to sit and watch Joe Dante color time? You know, yeah. like to like see what how his brain works with the color timer, you know, so I I took a complete advantage of that. I just kind of quietly sat in the back and observed. It's uh, fun to be the producer, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but, you know, but I you know, I, I agree. I think it, it is so important and you can put a real stamp on your storytelling in those processes while collaborating with these, you know, technicians and artists. Uh, you can completely overhaul the effect a movie has with the post-production aspect. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think it's, I think it's super important. Um, so uh, well, sticking to uh, production for a minute, uh, Stephen asks when you sign on to a project, do you have in mind what kind of camera you want to use or does the studio have a say when it comes to cameras or lenses? Um, 
usually I will uh, work with the director of photography in making that decision. Um, you know, I want him to feel, him or her, to feel as comfortable as possible with fulfilling the vision in the best way they see fit. Um, you know, in the case of, uh, of Nightmare Cinema, we use the Alexa Mini mm -hmm. um, for budgetary reasons, but also the quality of a Mini is as good as the Maxi. Yeah. Um, and, but it also allowed us more flexibility too, because of the size of the camera and all it's, it's the lenses that are big heavy. and heavy more yeah. than the camera yeah. these days, <laughs> but um, it's a very personal choice for a cameraman, but people don't, you know, they'll use different cameras mainly for budgetary reasons. You know, you'll, the red for years was used by independent filmmakers because it was cheaper than the Alexa or the Panasonic or whatever. Right. Um, but it's not so much the, uh, a budgetary choice anymore because they've all become pretty competitive. So I haven't shot anything, uh, in a bit, but, uh, Alexa seems to be the first choice for most, but we'll see what, what we use the next time. But it's, it's really something I like to bow to the director of cinematography, uh, because it's something he's going to be using, he or she is going to be using every minute of every shoot day. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and, and uh, I think budget will ultimately dictate those decisions, especially when it comes maybe less to camera, but more to lenses. Right. Um, <laughs> I, I know many a times there's been uh, certain glass that my DPs have wanted, including our nightmare cinema DP uh, that we did not get. And, and, you know, and that can have a huge creative more so than the camera. Yeah. I think the lenses have, have the greater creative impact on the movie. Um, so, you know, they could just Agreed. change the look and texture and size and scope. Uh, yeah. And, you know, a, a lot of times we'll use zoom lenses just to be able to change the lens, the, the lens size more yeah. quickly. Yeah. I, I almost never zoom during a shot unless it's for a very, very specific effect, but the flexibility and mobility and the timeliness of being able to change the lens size with a zoom lens, if the glass is good, is something that's very helpful when you're working in the independent world, particularly. Speed is key when there's not a lot of time and money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this is an interesting question that Gary posed. Uh, Making Joe is doing your own photography while directing a film something that you would like to do no <laughs> you know <laughs> there are people the the job of a director is to find to encourage and to allow the best people to do their best work and there are so many directors of photography who have spent their lives committed to shooting beautiful images that are so much better than i am at that I don't want to be the one with that responsibility on my shoulders as well. I want to be able to communicate with a DP who understands what I'm going for and to be able to make something even better than what I could create. Yeah. I mean, I think this, there's so many responsibilities that fall on a director uh, and to being able to delegate to people you can trust uh, is, exactly. is, is huge. Um, you know, I think the other reason... I wouldn't want to do it is there's just, there's a lot of math involved. 
Uh, <laughs> math isn't really my strong suit. So, uh, you know, when it you don't want to carry the cinematographer's handbook in your pocket. Yeah, right. Lighting and focal distances and such. And, you know, I know a lot of that becomes instinctual to them after a while, but um, it's not it's not something that I want in my brain while I'm also thinking of a million other things, plus actors performances and, and um, you know, so. I, I, I think it's I think there's a reason that the position is delegated. I think the people who do end up doing both, you know, kudos to them. But, uh, uh, you know, I now that's yeah, what, I salute Steven Soderbergh, who does a brilliant job. Yeah. Of and shooting so Robert, and Robert editing and, and Robert. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and, I, and, you know, and even I think um, Paul Thomas Anderson's done it on, on his most yeah. recent movies, too. So there are some wonderkins who have who have done it. Uh, that you know, but I, I personally believe in the delineation there, uh, you know, and, and also the math, uh, <laughs> and too many details to keep track of to be that focused. I agree. Ended. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't mind operating a second or third camera in yeah. a shot, uh, you know, when once the director of photography has figured out all the math and the lighting and the focal distances, and yeah, stuff. and I've done that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I have too. Uh, and I'm I'm a pretty handy camera operator. So like I, you know, that that I actually enjoy doing, but you know, budgetarily the opportunity doesn't arrive very much. Uh yeah. so you know, anyway, so yes, no, no to DPing, maybe yes to camera operating, I guess is the there the, you go. The long and short. Uh all right, Mick. Well, that wraps up another ask Mick anything. Well, thank you, Joe. And thanks to all the listeners. And please, if you're enjoying the show, uh, review us or rate us uh, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever uh, app you listen to us on. And thank you so much for your questions. And Joe, how can they get to ask me almost anything? It's AMA. A-M-A-A. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that, that, that doesn't quite have the same ring. Uh, you can send your questions for Ask Mick Anything to Mick. Uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Mick Garris PM, uh, or you can send them to me at Joe Russo tweets and at Joe Russo Graham on Twitter and Instagram respectively. Thanks a lot, Joe. Thank you, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.